Uh, it's good to be with you. Good to see you again. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are our life and our hope. You are our joy and our rock. And we pray that you would have yet more mercy upon us and speak to us today in such a way that you change us more and more to be like you. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. Now, of course, most of life is fairly ordinary. Uh, I don't know what sort of morning you've had this morning so far, but I suspect it's been a fairly ordinary morning. I had my ordinary morning. I got up. I had breakfast. I got my kids ready for school with my wife. My particular roles include forcing their breakfast into them and making sandwiches. I went to work. I had some meetings this morning. They were the usual sort of meetings. I have a shower in the mornings. That started it all off to wake up. I do my day and I go back to sleep when I get home after my evening. Saturdays are slightly different. I take my kids to sport. That's my usual Saturday morning now, uh, running around. Uh, garden in the afternoon. Sundays I go to church and life is relatively ordinary. However, punctuating that, there are peak moments, aren't there? Peak moments. I looked into a woman's eyes as she said that she would take me to be her husband and give me the honour due to me as her husband. Love and cherish me for the rest of our lives together. That was a great moment. You may have one sometime if you're so lucky. Not with my wife, but <laughs> some other lesser woman or man. Lesser woman, at least, but greater man, perhaps. Uh, I was right there when that same woman had my first child. Actually, it was probably our first child. Uh, I cut the cord that propelled him into independent life. Tough things, those little cords actually. Got to really sort of get stuck into it. And then I did it again for my second child. That was some peak moments. That's the most significant and peakest of all my peaky moments was that uh, I scored a century in front of my peers. I know you find that hard to believe. Not that, not that that was the peakest of all moments, but that I actually did it. But there you go, I did. I scored 100 runs in a free game and got out. None of these, however, was the best thing that has ever happened to me. That was 22 years ago and seven months. I was on a sailing camp run by a Christian organisation and while I was madly chasing a girl, God was chasing me, <laughs> as is usual. And on the 31st of December, 1982, at about 11.25 in the morning, I can remember where, when, who and how I became a Christian. Or better, I was saved. I was converted. I was born again. 2,000 years roughly prior to that, something else fairly significant had happened. But for me, that day, December 31, 1982, was the most important day of my life. We continue, as Ryan said, our series This We Believe, and having worked our way through the first two-thirds of the EU's doctrinal statement, our statement of belief, we continue with a short burst of three, which in lots of ways actually starts to speak about us. You have it there for you on your outline number seven, the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit to make the death of Jesus Christ effective to individual sinners, granting each one repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. In short, this affirmation of faith, statement number seven, speaks of conversion, being born again, and the decisively spiritual nature of that work. Now, there's some awkwardness, perhaps, in the term born again or conversion. It's often used negatively. People say to you, 
you're just out to convert people. Or don't try and convert me, as though conversion was a kind of abuse. Someone came uh, to a church I was at once and asked me, is this a born-again Christian church? So there was some other sort. There were the born-again Christian churches, and then there were still dead Christian churches. I suspect part of the reason for the hostility that we see in the world around us to this doctrine of conversion, the necessity of the work of the Spirit to make the death of Christ effective to individual sinners, granting them repentance and faith, is because of what it presupposes and therefore what it excludes. That's our first point. Notice then what the doctrine of conversion presupposes. There are three things that are presupposed in this statement which reflect the scripture, each of which carries an exclusion, and each of which exclusion is hated by our culture. The first is this, that what God has to offer us is not automatically applied to us. It doesn't just kind of get to everyone automatically. Or as the statement puts it, the death of Jesus Christ needs to be made effective. Christ died on the cross as the greatest gift of love and grace ever made or ever even imaginable. But like all love, and like every grace, it needs to be received, and that is not an automatic thing. How we receive it, we'll come to in a moment, but be very clear about what this excludes. It excludes universalism. The view that in the end it all works out for everyone, that all are saved. It's perfectly true that Christ died, as our statement puts it, as our death, as our, as our representative and substitute. And our there means all of us human beings. Here the instinct of universalism is true. Christ died for all. But the reality is that though Christ died for all, for us, not all will be saved. There is a gap. And the actual establishment of salvation for a person is conditional. It's conditional upon repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, not as some kind of merit which earns or deserves you something, but as an instrument that connects you to something, namely the death of Jesus. And the thought, you see, that it, in matters of religion, there is a fundamental distinction to be made between the saved and the unsaved, that what God has got to give to people is received by some and is not received by others, that thought evokes hatred and resentment. But it is true. It is true. And so it is presupposed in our statement here. The second presupposition in our statement is that what God has to offer us is not communal. It's not communal. And that there is a necessity for each individual sinner, notice, personally to take hold of it for themselves. We'll see that it's not by themselves, no, but it is and must be for themselves. It's not something that anyone else can do for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your school can't do it for you. Your country can't do it for you. At this point, being part of a Christian family, being part of a Christian school, if there was such a thing, being part of a Christian nation, even being part of a Christian community or church, just being connected to other people makes no difference. At this point, being part of a group is irrelevant. It is a personal and individual matter. And so it excludes, you see, associationism. There's no salvation by association. And finally, the third presupposition is that what God has to offer you is not general, but is quite specific. There is only one key that unlocks the gifts of God for you, 
you see them there, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a biblical phrase, actually, when the Apostle Paul met for the last time with a group of elders in a, in a city that he had ministered at and loved the church in at Ephesus, now in uh, modern Turkey, uh, who recounts the substance and content of his ministry. Listen to what he says, Acts chapter 20, verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And that's not Asian Asia, that's Roman Asia, which is Turkey. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews, I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house, as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about, here's Paul's testimony, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is literally about turning, a change of mindset. Uh, the word in Greek is meta, noia. Meta means the word to change, and noia, we still have the English word nous, you know, have you got any nous, have you got any sense, any common sense about your mind. Meta, noia, change of mind, change of mindset, change of outlook and approach in the world. It's a turning away from and a turning towards, a turning away from the world and the flesh and the devil these three great enemies of the human race, these three great agents and powers of sin turning away from and turning to God. And here's the point. That takes highly specific form. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusting yourself to him and to him alone. And what this excludes, you see, is religion in general as a human phenomenon. From a cultural point of view, religion is a highly significant thing. Great achievements have been done. Great heroics have been managed. From the point of view of receiving God's gifts, though, religion is entirely irrelevant. You may be the most religious person on earth. You may be devout enough that you put to shame every other person in this building. It makes not one drop of difference when it comes to receiving the gifts of God. We'll see that in a moment, actually, as Jesus encounters a very religious person. Culturally, religion is very important. Salvifically, religion is irrelevant. It makes sense, of course, doesn't it, if our earlier statement's right, that it's the death of Jesus alone that redeems us. Therefore, it's going to only be faith in Jesus alone that connects us to that death of Jesus. And religious experience in general, no matter how profound it might be, no matter how glorious it might be, counts for nothing. Explicit, individual, specific action. And what our statement says is that this is the work, the first great work of the Holy Spirit. The necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit to make the death of Jesus effective for individual sinners. Granting each one repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is exactly this that you see in that misnamed book, The Acts of the Apostles. It's misnamed because it's probably not really about the Apostles. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit of Jesus through the Apostles. This hurricane on earth of the Spirit as the Word of God just advances and gains adherence. As a consequence, for example, of the first Christian sermon. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other Apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Notice the divine passive. They were cut to the heart. Who cut them to the heart? Well, God cut them to the heart. The work of the Holy Spirit. 
The summary a couple of verses later makes the same point. Chapter 2, verse 46. Day by day they spent much time together in the temple and they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The Holy Spirit, by necessity, working in the hearts and lives of people, connecting them to Jesus' death, making it effective for them by granting them repentance and faith. After the disciples suffer a severe persecution, and the next summary of this work of the Holy Spirit is again expressed as the divine passive, yet more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Great numbers of both men and women. Paul speaks to a woman in Philippi, Lydia, and the Lord opens her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul time and time again. When people are spoken of as having come to Christ, it is the power of God sovereignly at work in them by his Spirit. For it is true that there is a necessity for the Spirit to work in individual sinners, granting them faith and repentance. Now at the same time as Acts writes, sorry, as Luke writes <coughs> these things, he's also quite comfortable simply to say that people became believers or that they repented, or that an apostle argued persuasively about the kingdom of God, all those things are true too. But what stands absolutely behind them and empowering them and enabling them is this work of the Holy Spirit. I'll leave you to read through Acts uh, yourself. It's a great read. The passage of Scripture that makes this point both powerfully and comically, however, is John 3. John chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, now's the time to draw it, unsheathe it, Pull it out. You need a Bible? I have my Bible with me. It's in my bag. I feel a little lost because it's over there. You should keep your Bible close to your person at all times. Let me hear that rustling of leaves. Click, click, click. John chapter 3 comes after John chapter 2. Nothing more a preacher loves. And to hear Bible flicks. Everyone got it? Anyone need more time? I'm just stalling. Why did the monkey put bacon and eggs on his head? Because he thought he was a gorilla. <laughs> ah, yeah. That's the only one I've got. Okay, John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him after a, uh, a secret admirer comes to him at night and compliments Jesus. I don't know if you've been complimented recently. I think about... Four years ago was the last time I was complimented. Anyway, uh, you may have received a more recent compliment. That's quite understandable. When you go, when someone compliments you, is thanks. <laughs> Not Jesus, though. He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Or literally, unless a person is born again, or born from above, she cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus doesn't have the faintest clue what Jesus is talking about. And so he asks what I think must be regarded as one of the dumbest questions in the Bible. And Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? <laughs> Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Now, it'd be worth spending much more time on this, and sometime you must make sure you do it, to understand with accuracy and fullness what the words kingdom of God mean. They don't mean floaty heaven you go to when you die. 
It's the phrase Jesus used to speak of ultimate hope. It's that place, that space where God's name is hallowed, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, where his kingdom has come, where God reigns. He's the king. He exercises authority and rule, which is unchallenged and joyfully received, where his gifts abound and are not substituted for lesser things, where his grace is lavished and received with thanks. It is the realm of all dreams fulfilled and all aspirations completed. There is no darkness and no lies and no fear where everything that is beautiful and rich and good is magnified in intensity and quality to infinity. And all that is bad and sad is shrunk to nothing. That is the kingdom of God. It is the triumph of grace and the work of Christ. Now, our clause speaks just of one particular point of that, the death of Jesus Christ effective to individual sinners. Um, the forgiveness of their sins, of course, release from the penalty, power and punishment, the guilt, penalty and power of sin, back in statement number five, I believe. But, but that is just the key that unlocks this whole future of eternal life, life in the age to come, life in the kingdom of God. Now, that's what we all want, isn't it? The kingdom of God. Isn't that really what people are striving for? I, I know this is a bit heavy for the first week of semester. Really, all you want is your lunch and to get the university to sort out your timetable. But, you know, just pause and, and when we get our heads out of our navels, this is what we're striving for. And this is what Jesus offers. This was his mission. And Jesus says very straightforwardly, only one thing is necessary for this kingdom of God. It's only one thing. It's just a small thing. You have to be born again. Born from above. Now you get a sense, I think, of the size of what Jesus is saying when you know who he's talking to, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus has been in Jerusalem and he's engaged in some dramatic acts in the temple and so has attracted public attention if not public notoriety. And now Nicodemus comes to him by night, possibly to escape the notice of his peers. Notice who Nicodemus is. He's as good as it gets, religiously. He's a Pharisee. That doesn't mean a nitpicker. I think that's what we tend to think of Pharisees are. You don't say often to your friends, oh, my dear Pharisaical friend. We mean negative. It's a highly negative word for us. It means nasty, little, finicky nitpicker. That's not... What Pharisees were in those days, though, Pharisees were devout, devoted, committed lay people. Actually, they didn't even get paid for it. See, ministers are paid to be good, right? <laughs> and, and some do better than others. It's, he wasn't even paid for it. He's good out of his heart. Focused. Holy. But better than that, he's a leader of the Jews. Jesus, a little later on, even calls him the teacher of Israel. And he even believes that Jesus is from God. You, you think, here is a very impressive individual. This is a person whose piety and spirituality probably makes you look like a spiritual pygmy. Okay? This is a very impressive guy. If anyone is sufficiently spiritual to be on God's team, it's this guy. But, but here's the point, right? Even for this guy, the peak, it's not enough. Jesus says, you've got to be joking. 
Here's a spiritual CV that would put you and I to shame, and Jesus still simply brushes his words aside and instead speaks to him about the kingdom of God and says that even he, Nicodemus, even he needs to be born again. Nicodemus sees the signs that Jesus is doing, but he doesn't see the thing that the signs point to. The thing that Jesus embodies, that is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says to him and to us, if you want the kingdom of God, if you want to be where there is that joy and where there is no sadness, then you have to undergo a change of such a radical nature that it can only be called being born a second time, having a whole new start in life, a whole new life, born from above, born from heaven. Nothing less than that is sufficient. A whole new way of life, new habits, new outlook, new desires, new appetites, direction, goals, hopes, fears, new judgments and assessments. For some it will occur in a definable moment that you can point to and know that it's happening, like for me, December 31st, 1982. For others, I hope, I hope for my children, uh, they'll never have a definable moment when they're born again. They kind of got born twice at the same time, once born and twice born, right from the start. They got them both and grow up in God and never know a time when they don't know God. What's at stake here is not a particular type of spiritual experience. That's not what is. You don't have to have a conversion experience. You have to be converted, born again as a spiritual reality. Now look, just to sharpen this point, you can be headed into God's future without all sorts of things. You don't need money to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, sometimes having a lot of money is not going to help you at all. It'll be a hindrance. You don't need wisdom to enter the kingdom of God. You can be as thick as two planks, happily, for some. You don't need ability to enter the kingdom of God. I lack ability in so many areas I've lost count. That's okay. You don't even need good works to enter the kingdom of God. The thief on the cross had nothing except the fact that he was a convicted criminal who turned to Christ. You do, however, need to be born again. Now the question that you've got to ask yourself, the question that Nicodemus was left asking is, why? Why such a radical break from the past? What's so bad about the past? Why isn't it all about just a gradual, gentle gradient of gradual self-improvement, the kind of thing that we're all on about, right? We're all just trying to be a little bit better each year. Once a year, you give your mind to this, make a New Year's resolution or two, buy a couple of self-help books, that great middle-class remedy for all problems. That's the section I go to. Management. Self-help. Well, Jesus answers in devastating fashion. Verse 6. What is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. It's like this. Uh, I used to own a couple of dogs, a pair of Jack Russell Terriers. Now, Jack Russell Terriers are frankly the Toyota Corolla of the doggy world. Very middling to poor. That's a mediocre breed. You know, it's just how it goes. You breed a Jack Russell Terrier with a Jack Russell Terrier. We did this, and what do you get? You'll never be surprised at this. Do you get Jack Russell Terrier. There's no rocket surgery in that. <laughs> Say you want to upgrade. Say you breed a Jack Russell Terrier with the Rolls Royce of the doggy world. A German Shepherd. 
Now, apart from the obvious anatomical challenges, <laughs> the point is, what have you got? Well, what you've got is a dog. What is born of dog is dog. That's all it can be. That's all it ever will be. It's a dog. And what Jesus says is what is born of flesh is flesh. That's all it is. That's all it ever will be. Now, what does Jesus mean by flesh? Well, on the one hand, he means that which is weak and limited. A little later on in chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says, it's the spirit that gives life, the flesh is useless. It's just, it's just limited in its capacity to do stuff. But more deeply, this idea of flesh has in it that which is opposed to God. Uh, the flesh is the world in opposition to God, human beings in opposition to God. What was originally good, now corrupted, and so refusing God. A little later on in chapter, John chapter 3, Jesus has a similar saying. He says, the one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he's seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. And the point is, you see, that flesh is not fit for the kingdom of God. Apart from the spirit, all we are is flesh. All we ever can be is flesh. All the possibilities and achievements and advances we ever make are flesh. What is born of flesh is flesh. Now sometimes it's wonderful, even breathtaking flesh. All the towering monuments of human society and culture. I mean, it could be brilliant, can't it? But it's flesh nonetheless. Weak, frail, corruptible, corrupted, sinning flesh. And the point is, uh, the thing for which Jesus was getting into trouble, the thing which would eventually see him crucified, is that the kingdom of God is constituted by spirit. Spiritual reality and spirit-born people as he says in the next chapter, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And what that means is that emphatically the kingdom of God is not a matter of fleshly realities like the nation of Israel or descent from Abraham or sacrifice in the temple or Jewish purification rites just to take some of the issues that have been raised in John chapters 1 and 2. And it's not about being a reasonably good mass-produced <coughs> Not so bad Australian. And the truth that Jesus powerfully speaks, Nicodemus comically enacts. Here is a guy who's Israel's teacher, someone who supposedly knows the truth to teach the truth, and at the end of the exchange, Jesus asks him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And we're tempted to go, yeah, how can that be? How can he be so obtuse? How can he be so slow? How come he doesn't get it? And of course we know the answer, don't we? Jesus has just told us the answer, hasn't he? That's the point of John telling the story to us. Despite the fact that Nicodemus had a reasonably good evangelist in front of him. Not bad. Despite the fact that it's likely that this evangelist of all evangelists 
probably didn't get his answers wrong, didn't mess his words up, despite the fact that Nicodemus has just encountered the living Son of God. The Spirit has not moved. The wind has not blown. Jesus likens this work of the Spirit to the wind. You can't see it happening, where it comes from or where it's going to. All you can see is its effects. And the wind has not blown for Nicodemus. Repentance and faith have not been granted by the Spirit. What is flesh is still flesh for Nicodemus. And so Jesus walks away from an unsuccessful evangelistic opportunity? No. Jesus walks away from a faithfully executed evangelistic opportunity in which the Spirit in his own sovereign goodness and pleasure did not work. At least yet. By the end of the Gospel, after having semi-defended Jesus in chapter 7, who is it other than Nicodemus? along with Joseph of Arimathea, who buries the broken body of Jesus. Apparently this word of Jesus was accompanied by the spirit of Jesus, and over time, in this case, over the course of the next couple of years in all likelihood, it would seem that Nicodemus was in fact born from above, was born a second time, was born of water and the spirit. I think that means water as in the waters of uh, a mother when she gives birth, her waters break, born of water and born of spirit, once born, twice born. might mean baptism, but I, I think the reference is probably to first time born, born of water, second time born, born of spirit. And so he was fit for a spiritual kingdom. Now, I, I want to make a comment here uh, and make sure that we understand and get this properly. It seems to me that all worldviews fundamentally come down to this point that Jesus is making here. <coughs> the issue is, how deep do you see the problem? You'll hear all sorts of explanations at uni about what the problem is and therefore what the solutions that are needed are. The problem is political constraint and therefore what's needed is political action. The problem is a lack of education amongst people and therefore what's needed is free and excellent education. The problem is sexual frustration and therefore the solution is sexual liberation and blah, 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 blah. And what's more, there's probably something true in all of them and something valuable in all the suggested solutions. But they're band-aids. <coughs> they're band-aids on something that Jesus says is far, far deeper than can be addressed with a band-aid. What is born of flesh is flesh. The sharpest thing about the Christian faith is its ruthless, pride-destroying depth with which it discerns the problem and therefore the depth of its solution, nothing less than being born again. Christianity is nothing if it's not conversionist. Do you hear that? Christianity is nothing if it's not conversionist. And I want to urge you to be a conversionist Christian. I sit on a board of a Christian organisation and there are some members of the board that are thoroughly Christian, other members of the board that are kind of semi-Christian, other members of the board that are not really Christian at all. And, and, and we were having a discussion about the broad Christian cultural ethos of the organisation and I thought, well, the meeting was a bit dull, so I'd throw a hand grenade. I said, um, oh, that's terrific, that's the, but what I'm interested to know is how many people have been converted here? <laughs> that's what matters, isn't it? I'm all for Christian culture and people, you know, I'm all for Christian ethos. I'm all, it's all good stuff. Right? Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying good, bad. I'm saying good, necessary. You must be born again. 
And what I want is for us to be conversionist Christians who know that what we are after, what we seek in others, what we pray for others, the the direction of our aspirations for the organisations that we're involved with, our interactions with our families, when we connect with our soccer team, with those who we play squash with, whatever it might be that you do, what you have in your mind is this, Jesus' words, what's born of flesh is flesh. And you must be born again because the gifts of God are not automatic. They're not communal. They're not general. It is necessary for the Holy Spirit to work in the individual sinner, making effective the death of Jesus for them and all that that brings. Jesus tells the story of the snake and Israel in the wilderness. She's halfway between Egypt and the Promised Land and doing what she does so very well, groaning and complaining, and God judges Israel and sends amongst her poisonous snakes and they, uh, the people cry out to God and the Lord says to Moses in Numbers 21 verse 8, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole. And whoever, whenever a serpent bit someone, the person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. What they had to do was look. You see, they were incapable of saving their own lives in the face of the overwhelming power of death, that is the poison of these snakes. What they had to do was to move their eyes, to lift their gaze to look at this manufactured snake on a pole. And Jesus takes this and sees in it not just a physical action and history, but a metaphor and spiritual reality. Just as the snake was lifted up on a pole, so Jesus will be lifted up on a cross, he says. Just as they were to look at that snake, so we are to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as he's given by God, lifted up, exalted at the pinnacle of his career on a bloody cross. What Jesus says is that in doing that, in turning the gaze of your eyes to Jesus, repentance and faith, that is the Spirit blowing and bearing, blowing in the dusty hearts of flesh and bearing again people born of water and now also the Spirit giving them repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, recreating them for eternal life, life in the kingdom of God. Well, how do these words of Jesus speak specifically to us? I want to say, if you're not a person who's been born again, that is, if you've just kind of been a conventional Christian, just hung around Christians, perhaps you thought that sort of being part of a Christian gang was enough, That's what made you Christian. Or you're banking on the heritage of your family. Or or you're just a generally nice person, you know, a pretty good religious person. From time to time you pray, you know, God, I promise I'll be better. Or you just think, well, God couldn't possibly discriminate amongst people. Everyone's okay. Then will you hear Jesus, please, this afternoon? You must be born again. You must if you would see the kingdom of God. Pass your exams by all means. It's a terrific thing to do. Make friends. Excellent. Even get an education perhaps here. We're incredible. <laughs> but more important than all of these things, good though they are, be born again. There's not a reason in the world to delay it. 
It can happen right now, right here. Look to Jesus crucified. Turn your eyes to him. Trust him and trust yourself to him. Ask that his death count for you. That it be for you the forgiveness of your sins. And that is the Spirit of God working in your heart, making you fit for the kingdom. Can I say, if you are a Christian person here this afternoon, then settle it in your heart that outside of Christ, people are flesh, born of flesh. And although you may say many more things about this, many more things than this about them, you must never say less than this about them. It's difficult, isn't it? Because you meet terrific people at uni. You make new friends, you expand your social horizon, you have a great time. Some people, it's obvious that they're unfit for the kingdom of God. They're not interested, frankly, and they work hard at making sure that's clear. But for others, it can be harder to see. And I'm saying, yes, notice that there's more to say about them than that they are flesh. Recognise that they are kind or generous or supportive or talented or whatever it might be. Say more, but never say less than this. Never let that other stuff, important though it is, obscure your view of the most important thing about a person, your wonderful non-Christian friend or brother or sister, my big-hearted non-Christian mother. They need to be born again. And that will drive you to your knees in prayer and to your diary in action to make sure that they hear the gospel of Christ that they hear of the God who is rich in mercy, that they call out to him for that mercy, that the Spirit works through the proclamation of the gospel to bring to them repentance and faith. This is the great driving passion of the EU, especially as we go into sustained time of mission over this next half semester for our 75th anniversary. We have Think Weeks in the next two weeks where we just want to get out there with a lot of little sharp needles and poke into people's heads. That's a, that's a metaphor. <laughs> Our posters will have no sharp objects on them at all. They'll just be words. But we just want to provoke and get through the cotton wool that sort of people wander around and the sort of overload of information that they get at uni. They sort of surround themselves with this cotton wool that means that they don't take notice of the big issues of life. We want to just kind of poke our way through that and say, no, think about it. What's born of flesh is flesh. You need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Just being a garden variety mass-produced young person, you know, it's not enough. Then the unfailing God mission in weeks 7 and 8. Get out of your comfort zone this semester. Way out of your comfort zone for the love of Christ and for the love of your fleshly friends. If you believe the words of Jesus, then join as we proclaim Christ and proclaim to this university, you must be born again. Of course, you can trust God with your loved family members and friends who are not believers. You can trust his love for them. He gave his own son after all. But you can also trust that they're not too far gone for him. They're too far gone for you, of course. There is no way that you can grant repentance and faith to them. You never could. Anything you can talk them into, someone else can talk them out of. So, frankly, 
Stop bothering to do the Holy Spirit's work, that is. But granting these gifts is precisely the Spirit's speciality. Of course, because it's the work of the Holy Spirit, that means that we will refrain from using ungodly means in our desire to bring people to Christ. Uh, the SCM, the Student Christian Movement, uh, which flourished on this university for decades, in fact dwarfed the EU in the first part of the century, had a slogan, they had a great vision, the evangelization of the world in this generation. They're running a little behind schedule. So they went for palatability, making the message a little easier to believe, a little more acceptable, cutting out the ugly bits, the bits about judgment and the uniqueness of Christ and sexual purity and so on. And now they don't exist at all. For us, we need to avoid moving into manipulation or bashing people with the gospel. No, our calling is to witness faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit of God will grant repentance and faith working in them so that the death of Jesus is effective for them. Let me say in this, be unafraid of your weakness. Be unafraid of your weakness, you see, because it's the Spirit of God who works in people's hearts and lives and so you have nothing to be afraid of. In fact, your weakness is the perfect place where God works to make it entirely clear that it is the work of His Spirit. The first person I led to Christ, I did entirely by accident. I was on a camp. One of the campers came to talk to me about a problem she was having. I thought she was a Christian person already and so I suggested that we pray together. She thought, I thought, mm, okay. As we prayed, she laid her heart before God. Turns out she wasn't a Christian at all. But through my complete stupidity, <laughs> the Spirit of God worked in her heart and mind and gave her repentance and faith and she gave her life to Christ. You cannot be too stupid for God. Exhibit A. <laughs> I want to finish with a story of William Carey, the great missionary hero, founder of Modern Missions. He was an uneducated man. Listen to some words from his biography. Soon after his conversion, he began to speak at various non-Anglican or dissenting churches and soon felt called to be pastor among the Baptists. If Carey's future success had been judged by his early days in preaching, so he would have been deemed hopeless for the ministry. He was never considered a very good speaker. Carey was slight of build, prematurely bald and crude in speech. I'm not entirely sure what being bald has to do with it, but there you go. <laughs> his first year at Olney, the church where he ministered, was so unimpressive that the church refused to ordain him. This guy is the giant of modern missions, right? One hero commented about his sermon, and you might give some feedback to your preacher this weekend along these lines. Weak and crude as anything ever called a sermon. Carey often said of himself that his one great strength was that he was a plotter. His one great strength was that he was a plotter. I'm saying you and I might be plotters. In fact, that might be our great evangelistic qualification. But when God adds the power of his spirit to our plotting, granting people repentance toward God, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death for them becomes effective and children are born for the kingdom of God.